Welcome back, everybody, to another Vince August podcast. Um, this one is going to be a special episode dedicated to Veterans Day. Um, I will do a normal podcast this week. Well, normal. I'll do a podcast covering news topics uh, later this week, probably tomorrow. But, you know, when, when I was thinking about doing something for Veterans Day, uh, I wanted it to be a standalone. Uh, I felt without a doubt uh, to pay tribute on Veterans Day. It needed something to be its own. And um, I'm going to do something a little different than I would normally do because this is not about me. This is not about my opinions with regards to military war action. This is about honoring those that served. And I have always been a firm believer that one of the things the United States needs is to have mandatory service from all United States citizens. And if you want to become a United States citizen and you're within the age to go into active service, I believe everyone should give two years of service to this country. And the reason I believe that is not because, you know, it's about fighting wars and, and being a war fighting country. I honestly believe that if you give two years of your life to a country whose rights you are going to take advantage of, whose opportunities you are going to take advantage of, I believe that you will be more involved in protecting, fighting, um, ensuring those rights. I think a lot of times if you don't have an active role in the government, if you don't have an active role in whatever it is you belong to, I think you take it for granted. And I think the United States, the rights that are given to us, the rights that are being taken from us are being taken for granted from people, citizens. Um, and, and I think the only way to stop that is to force active participation. Uh, one of my great regrets in life is not serving in the military. Um, I was going to do it straight out of high school. My father talked me out of it, uh, said, you know, go to college instead. And, you know, I, I went the college route and I was in college from 87 to 91. And I saw many of my friends deployed um, in the fall of 1990, not knowing where they were going. But we found out very quickly on January 15th, 1991, they were deployed to Iraq. And, you know, a war broke out at that time called Desert Storm. So, you know, I saw a lot of the people I grew up with in active duty, um, you know, brothers from my high school, John Devine, Mike Devine, served together, deployed together. And it, it was very real for me. Um, it was very real seeing these people go overseas and fight. And just to put into perspective what this country used to be like, and I, I know a lot of young people that might be living to, listening to this. You know, think about this. Think about the top athletes, the people that you watch and admire every day in sport being shipped off today to Afghanistan, to Iraq, to help fight the war in the Middle East. And I'm not talking about low-level athletes. Here's and, and this is not about athletes. This is about trying to get young people to relate 
and even older people maybe that have lost touch, to relate to just what this country used to be. Ted Williams, maybe one of the greatest hitters baseball's ever seen, was a Navy pilot for three years of what would have been his unbelievable baseball career. Picture Derek Jeter going to Iraq during the prime of his career. That's how you have to put this into perspective. Bob Feller. These are names that you should Google if you don't know who they are. Volunteered after he saw the attack on Pearl Harbor. And think about what I mean by after seeing the attack on Pearl Harbor. I'm not talking about, you know, 2001, September 11th, tons of coverage. A lot of, you're talking about newspaper coverage back then. Okay, television was not prevalent the way it is in society. Internet, non-existent. Much of the news at the time of World War II was pressed. The visuals weren't there. So Bob Feller reacted to the news, not just the visuals. Um, Roger Staubach went to the United States Naval Academy, was drafted by the Dallas Cowboys. And before he could play for the Cowboys, he had to serve a tour in Vietnam. Okay, you're talking serious active duty here. Um, Other people, Jackie Robinson. You talk about breaking color barriers. Jackie Robinson was in a tank unit that served in the war and was discriminated against even as a soldier. So here's a guy serving his country He's being discriminated against as a soldier, and he's still serving the country. Um, Joe DiMaggio served. I don't think he saw active duty. Willie Mays served. Another guy I don't think saw active duty. How about these guys? Joe Lewis, maybe one of the greatest boxers to ever live, enlisted. Yogi Berra, talk about great Yankees. Yogi Berra, I'm sorry, Yankee fans. Derek Jeter doesn't come to the level of Yogi Berra. Yogi Berra was at the D-Day invasion. Pee Wee Reese served World War II in the Pacific Theater. Whitey Ford, here's, here's an example of Whitey Ford, wins Rookie of the Year and then goes two years to Korea to fight. Imagine LeBron James coming out of high school, being Rookie of the Year, and before playing Another basketball game has to go to Iraq, Afghanistan. Again, perspective. Um, I I was lucky enough to to get a letter written to me from one of the great football coaches, just people that ever lived, Tom Landry. Um, Here's a guy who served 30 World War II combat missions. I mean, you know, Roberto Clemente of Puerto Rican descent. Enlisted as a Marine Reserve. That was how much he loved America. Okay. Puerto Rican descent comes to America, uh, immediately assimilates to America, and enlists as a Marine. Um, Larry Doby. A lot of people don't know the name Larry Doby. Jackie Robinson always comes up. Larry Doby actually broke the American League color barrier. He fought in World War II in the Pacific Theater. Basketball player Bill Sharman uh, played with the Boston Celtics during the, the, the early glory days of the Celtics with Bob Cousy. 
made eight all-star games, served World War II. And, of course, the most recent, Pat Tillman. Pat Tillman, if you don't know the story of Pat Tillman, you're, you're really missing out on a great American story. You need to Google it. You need to read the book about Pat Tillman. Pat Tillman was a guy who grew up in California, San Jose area, wound up going to Arizona State University, played in the Pac-10, winds up getting drafted in the seventh round, the last football round by the Arizona Cardinals. Um, when his contract is up, he was offered more money to play for the St. Louis Rams. Arizona did offer him a contract. He turns down the the bigger money contract from St. Louis to play for Arizona because in his opinion, they took the first shot at him and he wanted to show his loyalty to the Arizona Cardinals. 9-11 happens. Pat Tillman, recently married, six months married, looks to his wife, Marie, and says, we, we have to do something. But something has to be done about this. Enlists, become, becomes an Army Ranger, and then is caught up in, in one of the great cover-ups in our military and news when his death, which was caused by friendly fire, was basically used and manipulated as a draft tool, as something to further the war effort. And, you know, his father, who was an attorney, um, tried to uncover the truth. And, you know, the, the, the lie wound up getting placed upon a, a general who was re- retired, wasn't even, didn't even have anything to do with Pat Tillman's uh, deployment and, and operation and wasn't even on site. Um, you know, so our, our military personnel trumps all of the horrific stories that you hear about the military and in terms of cover-ups, in terms of missions, in terms of the benefits not conferred. And trust me when I tell you, our soldiers are so overlooked when they come back. A lot of people, a lot of our youth really has no clue as to the fact that soldiers are still deployed. Our, a lot of our youth, and even adults, everybody, our, I think our, our public in general, you know what, I don't want to just signal out our youth. I do that a lot. Our public in general is naive, uninformed, maybe uncaring as to the fact that our military are still in active duty. The fact that more soldiers have died from suicide since 9-11 than active duty. That the amount of post-traumatic stress our soldiers that have returned from war, that, that they're enduring, that they're going through since returning from active duty. The fact that when they come back from active duty, they can't find jobs. Um, you know, it's, it's unbelievable. Now, at the same time, please understand, you know, I don't, give absolution i don't give a pass to the military for mistakes i don't give a pass to people in active service to come back from duty and go crazy and break laws you you don't get a pass um, especially if you've served this country well and you were trained well you don't come back to it and then go haywire um 
So just because you serve military duty, in my mind, that doesn't give you a pass to, you know, come back and, and you know, get DWIs, commit murder and, you know, rape or whatever. You know, it doesn't give you an absolute an absolution to do anything you want. The point I'm trying to make here is we still have a war going on. These people come back from active service. They do not have benefits conferred upon them. They suffer from all kinds of post-traumatic stress. They are forgotten in many ways. And on this Veterans Day, I want to bring awareness to the type of people that serve. I want to bring awareness to the military that is forgotten. I want to bring awareness to the fact that, you know, there was a time in this country during World War One, World War Two, Korea and Vietnam, where no one that was an American citizen was absolved from serving in the military. It was a sense of pride. It was a sense of duty. It was a sense of honor. It was a love of country. I think we've lost that love of country. I think a lot of our patriotism has gone lost. And, and I really believe that if people were forced to serve for two years and give two years of your life, I think people would have a greater respect for what the United States is about. And I think people would fight harder to make sure rights were not taken away and people would fight to keep rights, expand rights, and no one to give rights up. And I think a lot of the indifference that we have in our society and culture today comes from the fact that there's a disconnect between people and country. I, I think this is just, for many, many people, a place to live and not our country. Yeah, we get excited when, you know, the World Cup comes around and we, you know, we believe that we will win and we get all pumped up about USA, USA. Yes, it happens in the Olympics with regards to the hockey team and things like that. And, you know, we do become rah-rah at times. It seems to be more sports-oriented. Um, yes, stadiums do honor the military. Seventh-inning stretches. You hear God bless America. Um, so there are many, many people in tune with the fact that there are wars still being fought, soldiers fighting. But my my whole argument here is that I think there's a disconnect in you know people going to election booths and voting. There's a disconnect and a lack of care. There's an empathy towards our government and what the, the level of involvement people have with the government in fighting for certain things because it's, ah, well, what, what can I do? One person can't make a difference. And I think if people served in the military, you would know everybody makes a difference. A chain is only as strong as its weakest link. And everybody who lives in this country that's a citizen, that pays taxes, that works, you are part of the link. The best way for me to, to vocalize what Veterans Day is is for me to not speak from my voice, but from that of a veteran. And back, just to set up what I'm about to read, um, in, after 9-11 happened, um, there was a, before Facebook, MySpace was huge. Um, everybody was on MySpace. Careers were built off of MySpace. And I was on MySpace to promote my comedy, of course. And I also got to connect with a lot of people serving in the military. 
and I became friends with people that were in the military, that were fighting overseas, that were deployed overseas in an effort to try to keep in touch and in an effort to try to, you know, send letters and, and messages to, to try to keep up morale that, you know, listen, guys and girls and, and everyone serving, you know, we, we love you. We support you. You're not forgotten. We, you're in our hearts. You're in our minds. And I made a connection with um, one particular soldier who was serving in Iraq, who was in the army. And we managed to stay internet friends. And although we've never met, I, I, I really consider this person a, a friend and, and I really can't wait to meet him. I, I, I can't wait to wrap my arms around this guy and give him a hug. Um, you know, seeing his posts on Facebook. I mean, this this guy is everything a, an American is to me, a throwback American, like all of the Americans that I just read off that were, you know, big names that you recognize that went into active duty. This is the guy who wasn't the athlete that served. This is the every man in the military. And what had happened was I'd sent a care package over to Iraq, you know, as, as, as many people did. And again, this is not about me. This was, you know, I made friends and, and, you know, at the time, many people were sending over packages to Iraq and I sent over a package and, um, one of the things that was in there, and this is what you're going to see in the letter, was uh, I had a website, and it was called Surrounded My Morons, um, because that was you know the, the the thing that I came up with at the time to kind of promote my comedy. Is every all my jokes were the fact that I felt like I was surrounded by morons, and I sent these guys T-shirts and magnets, and um, you know they would wear them under their fatigues, and they they took pictures. It was absolutely so great to see these guys, you know, do that and, and that there was a connection. I sent them DVDs so they could laugh. And all they wanted was letters. You know, all these soldiers that served, if, you're, if you have 10 minutes, write a letter to a soldier, send it to the USO, try to find one on Facebook, try to find a place where you can send these guys letters. Um, and, and when I say guys, I'm sorry, men and women serving. They, they love letters. They love just hearing from us. Send them whatever you can. I mean, I sent newspapers, um, you know, chewing gum, comic books, just anything I could get my hand on that would give them a connection to being home. Um, take the time to do it. There's, there's local USO offices everywhere. Um, so that, that will help set up the letter and, and how, you know, and why he says certain things. Um, you know, normally I don't like to put warnings on my, my podcast because, you know, it, it kind of scares away some of the crowd, but I, I don't want to censor this letter. So, um, I'm going to leave all of the expletives in there and to give it exactly the, what it needs. Um, so this is a letter that was written to me by this unbelievable gentleman serving in the military. And he sent it to me years after his act of duty. And he was looking through pictures, and here's what he sent to me um, unsolicited. And I'm now just going to read the letter. Anyway, after looking at the picture with the Surrounded by Morons, Morons magnet, memories of that 18-month period came rushing back like a flood. One particular day came back. I call it the single worst day of my life, which is why you will never hear me say, quote, 
This is the worst day ever, exclamation quote. After this particular day, no day is a bad day. I don't remember the exact date, but it was sometime in September 2005. We were all up before sunrise as usual. Vehicles were prepped. Weapons were mounted. Gear was checked and rechecked. It started like any other day in that shithole of a country. Our patrol district was the Abu Ghraib Market District of downtown western Baghdad, one of the most violent neighborhoods in the world at the time. My squad leader rounded us all up for the typical pre-mission brief and prayer. Then we loaded, mounted up on the vehicles, and headed out into the rising sun. Unsure of what was going to happen as soon as we left the gate. Leaving the gate was always a shitty feeling. You felt like you were being thrust into the jaws of hell. Everything was a gamble at that point. Survival was a gamble. We did our best not to worry about it, though. If you let it affect you, if you let it affect your thoughts, you were a dead man for sure. So we did our best to not even worry about it. It was beyond our control anyway. Fuck it, right? Anyway, I'm pretty sure if any of us knew what was in store for us, we all would have magically had broken legs and ankles so we weren't mission capable. Anyway, we putted along down the road through checkpoint 19 right into the mouth of the beast. Same route we've been taking for the last seven or so months. We blew through an abandoned Iraqi police checkpoint. That was our first sign that something wasn't right. The IPs were known for setting us up. They were dirty. Every single last one of them. As we emerged onto Route Vernon from Route Cardinal, we saw a crowd of civilians surrounding a garbage truck. Per SOP, we pulled over. SOP, Standard Operating Procedure, obviously, IPs, Iraqi Police. Sorry to editorialize, but let me make sure everyone understands. Per SOP, we, were, we pulled over, set up a perimeter, backed the ground off, and started trying to figure out what happened. Someone had shot the driver of said garbage truck. The locals said it was IPs. The IPs said it was. The guy was dead as Dillinger, nevertheless. We knew it wasn't us and very quickly realized this was going to be one of a thousand of other unsolved murders. Guy number one, dead. And we'd only been on the road for an hour. That was the first inkling that this day was going to royally suck. About 20 minutes later, along came another U.S. patrol. Reaper 3-1 from the 42nd MP Brigade, if memory serves. Their lead Humvee pulled up to mine, and their gunner shouted if we needed backup. I told him no. His guys could continue their mission. He shrugged, and that patrol chugged on. About 15 minutes later came one of the biggest, loudest, and most earth-shattering explosions I've ever heard. A plume of smoke came billowing up over the horizon. My first thought was, 
quote, someone just got royally fucked up, exclamation point, quote. Then it dawned on me. Those were our guys about a quarter mile down the road. Fuck the garbage truck driver. This was way more important. We kicked it into high gear and tried to respond as fast as we could. The radio instantly filled with chatter from Reaper 3-1. They had been hit. They pushed through the blast but couldn't find their lead vehicle. They figured he'd floored it and was a few miles ahead of them but weren't sure. We radioed back to let them know we were a quarter mile behind them and we would be arriving shortly to help. That's when I heard four or five very distinct shots from an M4. I instinctively ducked down behind my gun shield in case they were directed at me. When I realized they weren't, I hollered for my driver to stop and began scanning the horizon for whomever was shooting. That's when I saw a lone USGI lying in a ditch on his back on the side of the road. We hauled ass to the opposite side of the road where he was. That's also when we spotted the Humvee. It was nothing but a scorched hunk of steel. The GI that was shooting in the air was missing a leg. Debris and blood was everywhere. We quickly set up a perimeter to try to assist the casualties. However, other than the lone GI, the scene was literally dead. The truck was destroyed. Another GI was lying maybe 15 feet from it not moving. Our medic quickly applied a dressing to the stump of the first guy. He told us that the truck was hit by an EFP. They were all dead. The gunner had been ejected and the truck had rolled over him, but may be alive. He was a medic. My truck commander started the call for a medevac as we began our search for survivors. The gunner was barely alive. Maimed, in shock, probably paralyzed, and quickly dying. The rest of the crew, well, when I stuck my head in that Humvee, it looked like someone had filled it with 500 pounds of chopped hamburger. The TC had no head, or arm, or left leg. The driver was blown completely in half. His upper torso was draped over the radio mount between him and the TC. They were dead. I ran back to my truck and informed my TC of what we had discovered. The words no soldier ever wanted to hear came as a response from the medevac. Quote, negative. Possible sniper and RPG team in the area. Medevac denied. Transport casualties as by other means. Quote, that means we didn't want to risk losing a bird to save this poor legless medic fuck him we decided to do something by this time a platoon's worth of vehicles had arrived to assist and set up a perimeter while we broke the bodies free loaded them into bags and into our truck we headed to the nearest field hospital three dead and it wasn't even noon yet somewhere along the way two more ips had been shot just behind us five dead before noon we got to the bodies, medic and gunner, to the field hospital without too much trouble. I have to say there is nothing spookier than having a body bag with a body in it sitting next to you in a Humvee. It's very foreboding. 
We delivered the wounded to the doctors and the dead to the graves registration. Then we were told to go back out. We weren't about to hesitate. We wanted payback. We wanted to kill some fuckers over this one. So we headed back out. As soon as we hit that same stretch of highway again, the guardrail in the front of me vanished. My first thought was, quote, wow, someone detonated an IED way early, quote. Then the middle of the road exploded a lot closer this time. Fuck RPGs. Another patrol was already pulled over trying to get out of the kill zone that we had just wandered into. This is when the details get sketchy. Fuck if I know what was going on around me. The whole world was nothing but smoke, fire, and some of the loudest explosions. My head was pounding. My throat hurt. My eyes hurt. My ears were throbbing. Then it was over. Two AH-64 Apache gunships swooped in and reported over the radio they had spotted the team fleeing. We pursued them with the Apaches flying over watch. The rooftops around us exploded with small firearms. This was a fucking ambush. I returned fire, tearing at the rooftops with my trust M240 machine gun. I'm not sure if I even hit anything, but I burned through five or 600 rounds and even a few grenades out of my handy M203. Between that, the Apaches, and the other two trucks with their 50 cows, the world suddenly stopped turning. Quote, what the fuck just happened? Quote, was all I could think. I was terrified, confused, shocked. I don't know. It was a weird feeling. Nothing that happened so far made any kind of tactical sense or logic. I knew we had been ambushed. That was it. Was it over? Well, the Apaches radioed back and informed us the RPG team that had started it was done. They got them. That's when the greatest order ever came across the radio. Quote, Warhammer 1, you have permission to return to base. Quote, so we did. That was it. It was over. When we returned to base, we found out that the gunner from the earlier attack was dead. The medic was going to live. Thank God! Exclamation point. Six dead before noon. Eleven RPGs. And God knows what else afterwards. What a fucking day! Exclamation point. Anyway, sorry to send such a pain in the ass long email. I thought I'd share that with you. That was the single worst day of my life. I was 19. That letter hit me as hard that day as it did just reading it now. And I apologize for some of the pauses, but if that doesn't hit you emotionally about what a 19-year-old inactive duty goes through, I don't know what will. You know, I, I had the pleasure of meeting Michael Durant who was the helicopter pilot from what is known as the movie Black Hawk Down that was taken into captive. And 
he did a book signing in Ridgewood at Bookends, and and Bookends is this great bookstore in Ridgewood, and and celebrities show up and sign books. And normally, if a, a wrestler is there, they have a police presence to control the line. If a politician's there, the line wraps around the block. Michael Durant was there on this one Thursday night, and I had court, and I, and I had to, you know try to do my best to get out of court and I raced to get to Ridgewood and I got there and when I pulled up I saw that there was a a, a Humvee outside in, in camo paint and I, I there was no line and I thought to myself ah I missed it and I, I went downstairs even just to get a copy of the book and sure enough by the time I got downstairs there was the line a line that for celebrities you know a couple hundred deep four or five hundred deep, depending on the person. There was maybe 50 people on this line. And I said to somebody, oh, I, I guess most of the people are gone. And they said, no, this is it. And I said, you have to be kidding me. And they said, no. I said, this is it for Michael Durant. This is all that showed up. And to everyone who missed that, and everyone who did not go to that signing, I say thank you. Because whereas you did yourself an injustice, you did me a great service. I was able to spend a half hour talking to Michael Durant. I was the last one online, and I did that specifically so I can sit there and talk to him. Um, I read about the real story of Black Hawk Down, not the you know just the movie version. And I, and I really wanted to know about what he went through, but especially about two other guys that were Delta soldiers, Gary Gordon and Randy Chagart. If you don't know the story that is the true story, and you've seen the movie Black Hawk Down, they were the two Deltas in the helicopter flying over Michael Durant's disabled helicopter that kept asking to be sent down to protect Michael Durant in his helicopter. And they didn't want to give permission to these two Delta soldiers because basically they told them this is a suicide mission and we can't agree to put you down there to die, one. Two, there's no backup on the way. We can't get to that crash site. And they kept asking until finally the decision was made by General Garrison put him in. And these two guys went down and... They saw Michael Durant. They loaded his sidearm machine gun that he, he flew with and said to him, you know, we're going to leave you in the copter and go out because if we stay here with you, um, they're, they're going to know that, you know, they, they're going to kill all of us. So what they did was they pulled him out of his helicopter and set him up behind the wall. And they decided on staying with the helicopter, put him in a secure place, protect him and put themselves in harm's way to kind of keep the people at bay. And I asked Mr. Durant, I said, you know, did you know these two guys? And he said, I'm sure I'd seen them on the base, but I I didn't know them. I never spoke to them. Um, you know, I'm sure I passed them. You have to understand we have different platoons. I'm, I'm a Black Hawk pilot. They're, you know... Deltas, we we didn't exactly sit at the same table. I said, so, you know, what made them do this? 
He said, this is what they do. He said, and these two guys that I didn't know that wore an American flag just like I did basically sacrificed themselves to save my life. They're dead and I'm alive. And I can't explain why. These are people you should read about. Gary Gordon, Randy Shigart, Michael Durant. These are people that, you know, when, when you think about rough days, think about the letter I just wrote to you from a 19-year-old. My God, I, I think about when I substitute teach and, and I go to the high schools I go to and I hear the complaints of teenage kids and I hear about needing iPhones and iPads. And listen, all problems are relative. And I think about some of the, the, the spoiled nature and the needs and wants. And then I think about this 19-year-old soldier who wrote me this email, something he had to get off his chest. And I, and I thank them for profusely for sending this to me but because it gave me perspective. Because much like that soldier, I will never have a worse day ever. Not like that. At least I, I hope to hell I never do. Um, you know, that to me is what I think about every Veterans Day. It's, it's this letter. It's stories of these types of soldiers. And again, I, I try to come into touch with what we're doing around the world and the fact that some old white men, women, politicians in Washington make decisions with the lives of these young men a lot of times like they're not even real people. And when they come back, it's one thing to applaud them. It's one thing to stand up during a game and give them a standing ovation. They're going through much worse than that. The post-traumatic stress. And, and the people that donate money to their causes, a lot of times you don't hear about, you don't know who they are. Ross Perot, who ran for president in the early 90s, does more for our military than most people know. When I met Michael Durant, Michael Durant said to me, he goes, you know, the guy who made my book possible, the guy who made everything about Black Hawk Down and bringing those heroes to light was Ross Perot. And I said, you never hear about that. He goes, no, Ross doesn't want you to know about it. He just does it because it's not about the pat on the back. He just does it. And... Sometimes you need to be loud and vocal about these things, and sometimes you, you need it to get publicity so other people give. Um, you know, and I understand why people do that, and other times, you know, you don't. You know, I, I performed at Fort Dix, and I was given a, a Commander's Award of Excellence, and I was embarrassed by it. Oh, my God. I, I, I looked at the commander of, the, of Fort Dix, and I said, I, I can't accept this. And... I went to give it to a soldier, and I remember a guy came up to me, and, and he thanked me for coming there. Imagine that. Thanked me for coming there to perform, and I was like, are you, are you kidding me? And I said, listen, your commander gave this to me. I said, you know, what's your story? And he told me, I said, 
can I give this to you? And he went, no, 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 no. And he'd be jumped back from me with his hands up. And I said, I don't deserve this. I said, I'm, I'm not worthy of having this. One of you should have this. And he looked at me and said, you don't understand what it means to have you come here and do this for us. And for the, the comics that have gone out and, and performed in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and have gone on tours, you know, you, you know as well as I do, just the gratitude that these people have for just being around them. So you know what? If you have time, if you know a soldier, shake their hand today. Give them a hug. Write them a me- an email. Send them a message. Contact a USO. Say, can you give me the name of a soldier I can send a letter to? That's showing gratitude on Veterans Day. Not just a Facebook post. Not just saying thank you. Take the extra step. Please. Take the extra step today. Find a veteran somewhere and make it personal. Don't just make it a post. Make it personal. That's what this podcast is about. I'm not going to go on any further other than say thank you to everyone that served. And you make this country great. You are why we have a great country. God bless you, everyone. Thank you.